But we're picking up this morning in 2 Peter chapter 2 in a sermon series that we have titled Grounded and Growing, because Peter is writing to the Christians of not only his day, but today, to ground them in the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but then also to compel them, to uh, convince them that they must be growing in that grace as well. And that looks like something. A few years ago, several of us uh, had the privilege to go to Israel together. Uh, And I uh, had the privilege to be able to coordinate that trip. Uh, But something that happened just before the trip started that really threw me off was I got a, a letter in the mail from the company that organized the trip with a check uh, written to me and the instructions that I was to take this check, I was to cash this check, I was to then take the money and divide it into several separate envelopes because as we were going to many of these different hotels and bus drivers and loading and unloading and concierges and you know the, the, the folks that were uh, over the dining room, there was an expectation that a gratuity would be distributed to those individuals. And I, as the coordinator of the trip, was responsible for making sure that those gratuities got to the appropriate person. And that was probably the single most stressful thing in the entire trip. Because you're dealing with people that speak very little to no English, who know that this is probably the one and only time that some of these Americans are going to be present and be responsible for this. And so there were multiple times that I got conned by people at the hotels where we were staying. Luckily, I had additional cash that uh, was a blessing that I was able to to make up. But there was one particular one, and some of them may remember this encounter. But when we got to our very last hotel in Jerusalem, a hotel owned by the company that coordinated the trip, there was an announcement made upon check-in by the lady behind the counter that if anyone had any gratuities to leave for any of the staff, they were to give it to the people at the front desk who would ensure that it went where it was supposed to go. So guess what I did? I took the envelopes clearly labeled where this money was supposed to go and gave it to the people behind the counter. Upon checkout, though, the guy who was there who was loading all of our luggage onto the bus to get it out came and asked for his money. And I said, well, I was told by the hotel that if we had any type of gratuities to give it to the counter and they would distribute it, they've got your money. And oh my goodness, was there a row at the front desk. And our translator was doing everything that he possibly could to to kind of negotiate this. And the poor guy behind the counter, who was not on duty when we checked in and had probably no idea where that money went, was in the the middle of it. Eventually, I was able to just, I pulled some money together and I gave him the tip that was there and we, I, I wrote a letter to the team. But the truth of the matter is, in that moment, I trusted the person who was in the position of authority on the other side of the counter because of the position they were in, the promise that they made, and also the connection with the company that was there. And in that, I found that they fell far short of my expectations. And the truth of the matter is, it's not uncommon for us to be lulled into an, a comfort with someone or with a situation when we shouldn't be. We are all prone to be lulled into false senses of security in any different circumstance. But it can happen especially in the church, where we just assume that because someone is ordained into the ministry, 
We can assume that because a, there is a Christian organization that is doing the ministry of the gospel around the world, we can assume that because this author's book is on the shelf in Lifeway, which is a Southern Baptist organization and company, they must therefore then be safe. And we can be lulled into this place, this false sense of security, just because of the circumstances or even the person that is in front of us. There is no one in this room who is beyond the ability to be deceived. Peter knows that. And Peter sees the deception that is plaguing the church of his day, and he has a warning to issue to us in 2 Peter chapter 2, where he boldly proclaims that we should not be deceived and then descend into darkness and destruction. 2 Peter chapter 2, we're going to read all of it. It could probably, possibly be three separate sermons, but we are going to take a big bite out of this apple today. So just pin your ears back, and here we go. Peter writes, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed, And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if He did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when He brought a flood upon the the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, He condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as this righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority." Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce blasphemous judgments against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instincts, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they've gone astray. They followed the way of Balaam, the son of Baor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome... The last state has become worse for them than the first. 
For it would have been better for them to never have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mud. Would you pray with me? Father, I just lift this time to you. My heart and my head, I give it to you. Lord, may this be a time as we wrestle with hard truth. Lord, that it would be one, a time nevertheless characterized by compassion and the grace and the knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we be a people, Heavenly Father, who are on guard, but who are not, not hard-hearted and harsh. May we be a people instead, Heavenly Father, who understand the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ and who express the grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ in lives committed to godliness for your name's sake and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this small letter of Second Peter revolves really around one big purpose from Peter. Peter is writing this, ver- or this book to remind believers of both the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the truth of our salvation in Jesus Christ, the truth of his promises, the truth of our transformation, that we have a new nature in fellowship, in koinonia, with the nature of God himself. And nevertheless, then also calls us not only to the truth, the the teaching of the faith, but also the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ that shows up in lives transformed by the gospel and lived in light of the gospel in the world. Such a life that is embracing or experiencing God's grace and God's love and therefore expressing God's grace and his love is a beautiful life and a beautiful picture of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the world. And so Peter is calling these Christians to the truth and the beauty of the gospel and calling them to lives and faith and godliness. And his letter is very urgent and to the point for two reasons, if you'll remember. One, he has shared with us that his time on earth is short. Peter is most likely looking at the gallows that are being built for his own destruction. It's really a cross on which he was crucified. But he knows that persecution is ramping up and he is a leader of the church that is being persecuted. And so by God's revelation in his heart and his life, he knows that his life is coming to an end. And so he will not mince words, but is writing and speaking with an urgency to Christians of his day and today. But also, we'll see here, as we see here in chapter 2, he is addressing a threat that exists within the church. And that threat that we see in chapter 2, in contrast to the true witness of the apostles and the prophets and the word of God in Scripture that he talks about there at the end of chapter 1, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, but men were spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In contrast to that true message, there is a false message, and there's false teachers. And so the first thing that we, as we look and try to understand this passage of Scripture, the first thing that I want us to see that Peter emphasizes is the problem of false teachers that exists within the church. In these verses... Peter emphasizes a few things about the problem of these false teachers. Number one is the presence of these false teachers. The fact of the matter is they exist within the church. Verse one, false prophets, are just as false prophets arose among the Old Testament people of God, 
there will be false teachers among you. Later on in verse 13, he says that they are close enough, these false teachers are close enough with you that they are feasting with you. Though we need not live necessarily in a paranoia, constantly afraid, we still nevertheless need to not live in a willful blindness to the reality that false teachers exist, and yes, false teachers exist inside the church. I've been asked in regards to other sermons, do I really believe that there are preachers and there are teachers who are standing up and who are leading people to hell all in the name of Jesus Christ? And the answer is unequivocally yes. Absolutely yes. There are false teachers on all kinds of different networks and social media platforms. They are published and on shelves in Christian bookstores. And they have many people, according to verse 2, many follow after them. The fact of the matter is, how do I know that they exist inside the church? Because the Bible says that they exist in the church. Peter says right here, false prophets existed among the people of Israel in the Old Testament. Go and read the Old Testament prophets and you will find again and again the reality that there were false prophets with false messages who had the ear of the kings... And it was the true prophets that were exiled and who were marginalized and who were ignored. And Peter said, just like there were false prophets then, there are false prophets now and there will continue to be false prophets. John himself says, yes, there is an antichrist that is coming, but the spirit of antichrist exists in the world today and even inside the church. And so the fact of the matter is there, is false, there are false teachers and there is false teaching even inside the church. But he doesn't merely emphasize their presence. He also talks about their preaching. He gives us some signs and some symbols, some things that we can be looking for. He says in verse 1 that they bring destructive heresies, dangerous doctrines, teachings into the church. In verse 3, he says that they exploit you with false words. Unlike Scripture, which has no fallacies in it whatsoever, no falsehoods, no lies, no deceit, but it is perfectly true as a reflection of God's heart, the teaching of the false teachers is full of fallacies, full of contradictions to God and God's Word. Their false teaching, both within this passage but throughout the letter, seems to revolve, as best that I can understand in studying in 2 Peter, around two things. First, they, their teaching is an invitation, an enticing of others into lifestyles of sensuality and destructive behaviors. Verse 13, Peter says this, They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. Verse 14, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. On down in in verse 12, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about things which they are ignorant. They're destroyed with their destruction. What he says there, and even down into verse 18, speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. Their teaching seems to be a false doctrine of this message that we've talked about a few times, that the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ is a license for sin. 
that grace, God's unmerited favor in the lives of his children, means I can live however I want and there are no consequences. Because grace is always there to, uh, to, to overcome my failings and my falling shorts. Right? And that's exactly what Paul anticipates. If you go and you read the book of Romans in his uh, speaking and his preaching and his writing there on grace, when he's done writing on the freeness of grace and the, the absolute um, uh, overwhelming beauty and, and availability of grace and what it means, he immediately anticipates what is in the mind of his audience and asks the question that he expects that is there. Well, if this is what grace means, then it means that I can sin all I want because grace just continues to abound. Every time I sin, there's grace. And every time I sin, there's more grace and more grace and more grace. And so if I want to get grace, then I just could continue to sin. And God is just there to pour it out on me. And we end up in this really wonderful symbiotic relationship where I get everything that I want and God gets the opportunity to give me grace and that makes him happy and on my life goes. And Paul says that's not right. And that's exactly what Peter is saying as well. That these false teachers are speaking a message that is encouraging sin and living a lifestyle for themselves. But beyond just that, their message also seems to be a message that blasphemes spiritual entities and belittles spiritual realities. Look in verse 10, the second half. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Down into 11, these like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant. Again, in verse 12, I'm oh, sorry, verse 11 and verse 12, angel, they, they're blaspheming the glorious one, angels, uh, though greater in might and power, they do not blas- uh, pronounce blasphemous judgments against them before the Lord. So the question then asked in this is, okay, what is it that they're blaspheming? And there's a lot of different theories on who are these glorious ones that they're talking about. And really, it boils down to two probable realities. Either one, these false teachers are like Peter, who is addressing their false teaching, have a part of their ministry that is about belittling the message and the men that are the apostles, the glorious ones there being the true teachers and the true pastors of the church. I don't think that that's necessarily the case, though. I think that what he's talking about, because when he talks about these glorious ones and the ones that even the angels don't talk about in the presence of the Lord, I think that he's building off of the illustration that he's already given that these are, in fact, potentially fallen angels and evil. You see, as they are teaching the, this doctrine that leads people into sin, what it seems to be like is happening is that they're referring to an Old Testament uh, story in the book of Genesis that according to Jewish tradition, we don't find this in Scripture, but Jewish tradition talks about Genesis chapter 6 makes a reference to the sons of God who were having sexual relations with the daughters of men, and that was evil and wicked. And Jewish tradition were that those sons of God were angels. And it seems to be, seems to me to be that what these false teachers are saying is, look, if the angels did it and got away with it, then we can do it. 
And in doing that, they're pointing to angels who have the ability to do this. What they're ultimately doing is they're lumping all of the angels in the heavens and says, listen, if angels have the ability to sin, how much more do we, who are the recipients of God's grace, God's grace have the freedom to sin? And so they are blaspheming the heavenly hosts whose hearts and souls are pure and purely devoted to the Lord. And not even angels speak against one another. And the connection from that comes, you can look in Jude, where Jude says something very similar about how Michael refuses to even blaspheme the devil, but instead calls God in him. But beyond just this, it's not just that they are blaspheming the angels and the heavenly hosts. It's very clear when you get into chapter 3 that they are also speaking about spiritual realities and belittling the spiritual reality of what Peter has already emphasized, that Jesus is coming in judgment. If you look in chapter 3, and we'll see this in another couple of weeks, that there are scoffers who say, where is his coming? Of course we can get away with this. Because the reality of Jesus' return is just a fable. It's a myth made up by the apostles. He's not ultimately coming. There isn't going to be a judgment or consequences for the lives that we live, and so we can live however we want. They deny the very involvement of the Lord. They deny the return of Jesus Christ, and so their preaching seems to be a deceptive teaching that there's no consequences and they can live however they want. We'll see that this is wrong in just a moment. But Peter is emphasizing that not only that they are present and they are preaching a message, but he also says what their lifestyle looks like, their practice as well. The lives of the false teachers are characterized by sensuality, verses 2 and verse 18. It's characterized by greed. They do what they do because of the name that it gives them and the amount of wealth and popularity and power that it amasses for them. Their lives are characterized by lust, verse 10, verse 13, and verse 14. They despise authority, verse 10. They reject the apostles and they reject the, the, um, the, the, the authority of the local church. They have complete, a complete lack of self-control, verse 12. They're just animals given over to their instinct. And they are self-deceived, verse 19. You know, it's possible, brothers and sisters, for us to be deceived, but there is no more powerful deception than self-deception. And that's exactly what we see is true of these individuals as Peter says that they preach a message of freedom and are completely blind to the flat fact that they are slaves to their own sin and corruption. They have deceived themselves in deceiving other people. And the result of their lifestyle and the lifestyles of those who follow after them is that the way of Jesus Christ is blasphemed. Verse 2, many will follow their sensuality and because of them the way of truth is going to be blasphemed. We have to understand this isn't a people denying Jesus and denying the faith of, of Jesus Christ and therefore living a godly life. Instead, these are people who are living an ungodly life and doing it in the name of Jesus. And so the world looks at that and says, if that's Christ, I want nothing to do with it. And what we must remember is that is not the way of Jesus. And that is not the example that Christ gave us. The way of Christ is more of Christ. And what we find of Christ is that he is not greedy, but he is the one who came not to be served, but to serve. He is not abusive, and he is not deceptive, but he speaks the truth and declares the truth, even if it means that he loses followers as the rich young ruler and others walk away. 
And Jesus loves and has compassion upon people and he meets their needs and he serves them and he loves them and he loved them to the point, what we saw last week, of self-sacrifice and selflessness. And that stands in stark contrast to the lifestyles and the livelihoods and the teaching of these false prophets. Jesus Christ invites us into that life of love and selflessness and sacrifice. A life laid down, not for merely for his own gain, but for ours, that we might be forgiven. Peter doesn't just emphasize the presence of the problem of false teachers. He also emphasizes the promise of God's justice. Whereas these false teachers are talking about God is a God who is a hands-off God. He's, he's that dad who's in heaven who's just will let you learn from your mistakes and I'll just watch and everything else and I'll be at, back um, from a safe distance. Instead, what Peter teaches is that God is intimately involved in the world and in the lives of both the godly and the ungodly. And Peter emphasizes the certainty of the coming judgment of Jesus Christ. And his evidence or his proof for the fact that there is a judgment coming is he points to the past when judgment came. And so he rolls through in verses 4 through the first part of verse 10 this chain of events. This if, this if, this if, as he piles them on top of one another. And he talks about those angels from Genesis chapter 6, most likely, who, dis, who denied the Lord and who departed from his way and pursued lust and sin. And God didn't spare even them, but cast them into hell, committing them into chains of gloomy darkness. After that, he didn't spare the ancient world, but he was willing to wipe clean the slate by killing all of humanity and every living creature on the earth except those that he preserved with Noah and his family on the ark. God brought judgment upon them because every inclination of the human heart was evil at that particular point. And they pursued their own ways. And God again entered into the human world and brought his judgment upon it. And then in addition to that, Next in the chronological, sign, or, or the chronological story of God's judgment is when he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah for the wickedness and the ungodliness and the unrighteousness of the city. Yet, God in his grace spared. He spared Noah and his family. He spared Lot. And so while we must be very bold and clear and, and, and confident in the reality and the biblical truth that God will judge the wicked, again and again you find as you read back through these verses, you'll find a word that Peter repeats is the destruction of these false teachers and the destructive teachings that they have and the destruction that is coming. And that is shorthand for the damnation of these false teachers and all who would follow after them. The eternal destruction and fault and consequence for their sin. And Peter is emphasizing the fact that God is a God who because He is just demands that evil be punished. And demands that unrighteousness be dealt the blow that it deserves. And God is a God who is full of grace and mercy. And God is a God who spares the righteous. And so Peter's conclusion is that, listen, if God is going to punish angels and all of human world and two evil cities, and if he's going to spare even Lot inside of Sodom and Gomorrah, then God is trustworthy. 
If that's going to happen, then we can know the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and keep the righteousness, the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. God is trustworthy to enact justice in his time and in his way. And so unlike the teaching of the false prophets that says that God is a hands-off God, what we're going to find from Peter is that is not a sign of God's passivity. It's a sign of God's patience. And his open invitation for each and every one to turn again to him and respond to his message of grace and the invitation of Jesus Christ, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. And this is something that we as believers must hold fast to. Because it's easy, like the psalmist, to look out in the world and go, God, where are you? The wicked are the ones who are thriving in the world around us. And the just and the righteous, they get beat up all the time. And it's easy to look at the evil and the depravity of the world and wonder, God, when are you going to do something about this? Are you really just a, a clockmaker God who wound it up and left it all and we're just on our own? And Peter's encouragement to us is don't be deceived either by the false teachings of the people outside of you that might say that God has just moved on, he's old, he's decrepit, he can't do anything about it. And don't believe that voice that even arises in your own heart that would say something similar. But instead, remember that God is faithful and God is trustworthy. And here's the other thing. God's judgment will always be better than yours, no matter how righteous your judgment may be. And he is the one who will ultimately dole that out. And so Peter emphasizes the promise of God's justice, but he also gets into something that it's a can of worms, but it's here. And I'm going to deal with it as best as I can. But he deals with, in the last part of this, and the message that he is giving to the church is to prevent the, the possibility of apostasy. Apostasy is the turning away from a belief once held firmly. And so in these verses, we are introduced to a topic and to a message that creates tensions with other passages that exist all throughout the Bible. Peter clearly, you hear me clearly, Peter clearly applies the language of faith, redemption, and salvation to these false teachers. Verse 1, he says, they deny the master who bought them. Bought there is the language of redemption. It's the language applied to what Jesus Christ did on the cross. That his blood bought us out of our slavery to sin, redeemed us, rescued us from that. These are people who deny the master who bought them. Past tense, applied. But then in verses 20 through 22, we see this again. If after they have escaped the defilements of the world, after these false teachers have escaped from the defilements of the world. That brings us back to the language of what he used back in chapter 1. Having become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. It's the same kind of language. After they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled with them and overcome. The last state is worse than the first. 
It would have been better for them to have never known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the command delivered to them. That language of knowing, remember I told you, the knowledge language in Peter is very important. And there's a very subtle difference in the, the book between two words for knowledge that Peter uses. So I told you a couple of weeks ago when he talks about adding to our faith knowledge, he's not talking about saving faith, saving knowledge, and that intimate relationship with Jesus Christ, but instead most likely talking about an understanding, a growing and an understanding and a competency in the gospel. But whenever he uses the word epignosis as opposed to gnosis, in the Greek, that little add-on, epi, it doesn't necessarily change the meaning of the word, but it's very clear that he is making a distinction between the two. And every time that he uses that word epignosis to this point, he is talking about the fellowship of a relationship with God. That intimate knowledge that comes with two people who know one another personally and well. And that word epignosis is what we just read. That they escape the defilements of the world through the epignosis of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It would have been better for them to have never epigno the way of righteousness than after epignoing it to turn back. He is very, very clearly applying the language of faith to these false teachers. And then, there is the very clear message that these false teachers are reserved for, held for, destruction and damnation. These false teachers are headed to hell. More so, Peter promises in those verses that we just read that if after knowing Jesus Christ, they turn away again, their last state is worse than their first. The only proper way to understand that is that the worst state is a state far away from God. The question, though, becomes how then do we reconcile this with other verses throughout Scripture that seem to say, or actually not seem, but clearly teach, that our salvation is something that is held secure by Jesus Christ. Think about John chapter 6, verse 39. Jesus there is talking about, I am the bread of life, and those who come to me I will not cast out, and all that the Father gives to me I will never lose. 639, this is the will of God who sent me, that I should lose nothing or no one of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. It's Jesus who holds them. It's Jesus who raises up those who are saved on the last day. Not you and me. It's Christ who holds them fast. It's Christ who holds us fast. And throughout Scripture, there is very clear indication that because salvation is ultimately a gift and a work of God on our behalf that we receive by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone, it is God who saves us, it's God who keeps us saved. How then do we reconcile that message that God saves us and secures our salvation with this message from 1 Peter and Hebrews and other places in Scripture that very clearly seems to indicate it is possible for someone to lose that. Short answer, I don't have a good one. I wish it, well, I did. But the truth of the matter is there are mysteries in Scripture that we just don't quite yet understand. And there's a lot of different theories of what is going on in this passage of Scripture. The one that I am most convinced by 
is that Peter is using a kind of hyperbolic language of these teachers. These teachers are convinced of their own salvation. They are teaching that they are saved. They have walked the aisle, they have been dunked, they have been baptized, and yet they are so self-deceived, they do not know that they are not, in fact, saved. And the fact of the matter is, that's very, very possible, because that's exactly the single scariest passage of Scripture in all of the Bible, to me personally, comes out of Matthew chapter 7, when Jesus talks about the day of judgment, and there will be people who stand in Christ's presence, and Jesus says, depart from me, for I never knew you, and their response is, but wait, 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 we preached in your name. We prophesied in your name, Jesus. We did miracles in your way, in your name. I don't know about you, but I, I've, there's, I've not done any miracles in the name of Jesus. That's like next level Christian stuff. And that is, I've not done that. And these guys are saying, we preached, we prophesied, we performed miracles in your name. They're displaying power. They're displaying competence. They're displaying all that everyone from the external on the outside looks at them and says there is every marker that I can think of that these people are super Christians. And yet Jesus says, it doesn't matter what you do for me. It matters what you do with me. And so Peter is holding up these false teachers as an example of deception, of self-deception, and the danger and the destruction that exists. And so the warning of this passage is, do not be deceived and therefore drawn, dragged into spiritual damnation and destruction. Do not be deceived. You can have a record a mile long of the things that you have done for Jesus But if you don't know Jesus, you don't love Christ, if you love the things you do for Jesus more than you love for Jesus, that is a problem. And the invitation is always look to Christ and trust in Christ and hear this as the warning that it is. God in His grace is the one who saves. God is the one who sanctifies. God is the one who ultimately will glorify us. And one of the means, brothers and sisters, that God uses to hold us in the way, the path of righteousness that Peter is calling us to, is passages just like this that says, don't walk away from it. Don't taste the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ and then turn back to the vomit of the life that you cast out. Don't be one that has washed and therefore clean and righteous. And then go right back and roll around in the mud. But instead, pursue Christ and pursue the life of godliness and pursue Him. And here's the key. The ones who persevere in the life of godliness are the ones who ultimately receive the crown. Go and read all of the letters to the New Testament churches that Jesus speaks to them in Revelations chapters 1, 2, and 3. In every one, it says the one who perseveres, the one who makes it to the end, the one who holds fast, they are the ones that are crowned with the crown of life. And God gives all kinds of gifts in your life to keep you on the path of life. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But he also says, I am the door and I am the way. I am the only way in and I am the only way forward. 
And that the way of destruction is broad, but the way of life is narrow. And one of the tools that God gives to you and to me to keep us on the narrow way of eternal life and salvation in Jesus Christ is warnings just like this that says, don't walk away from it. Because if you walk away from it, you have a situation in which you are infinitely worse than when you began. And the ones who hear and heed that warning are the ones who allow themselves to be kept by the grace of God. This is an instrument of God's grace. And the ones who blow past the guardrail of grace that God has placed in our lives, that is the warning to stay on the straight and narrow, are the ones who will spend eternity in hell. Because they have blown past every barrier, roadblock, off-ramp that Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit has placed in their life. Calling them and inviting them to pursue him. So I can't give you a firm, hard answer of, is it possible for a true believer in Jesus Christ to abandon the faith? I believe from Scripture that the rest of it says that because this is a work of God in our lives, God keeps those who are saved. But one of the mechanisms that he uses for that is warning passages like here and in Hebrews. And so we can't just ignore them. We can't just take them lightly and say, oh, well, the Bible teaches once saved, always saved, so I'm good. No. It says live in faith and godliness and in the love of God and live a life pursuing the good of others and the glory of the Lord. Because that is what Christ did. He laid down his life for you and for me. Not for greed, not for proclaim, but he and he alone is trustworthy. So be on your guard. Don't be paranoid, but don't be self-deceived either because God in his grace brings us through all things for his glory.